Welcome everyone to another episode of Security DNA. I'm John Doberstein, Managing Editor of SecurityInfoWatch.com and the host of this podcast. The editors here at Security InfoWatch use this podcast to provide detailed, actionable information of value to security professionals. This will include industry news, trends and analysis, technology solutions, policy risk analysis, analysis, and management. For this episode, I have with me my colleague, Steve Lasky, who is Editorial Director for the Security Group at Endeavor Business Media. Our conversation today is with John Polly, who is Chief Solutions Officer for Protect Solutions Partners, a security technology consulting firm that works with smart cities and corporations to bring business intelligence and public safety through security IoT applications. John has over seven years of citywide surveillance deployments and over 22 years of physical and electronic security experience. He's worked as a project manager and system designer for citywide surveillance and transportation camera projects in Raleigh and Charlotte, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, and Washington, D.C. As a former police officer on the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Force and as a security administrator for the global nonprofit Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, John brings unique out-of-the-box thinking to secure cities and properties, but also first responder tactics to address threats. Prior to becoming a security consultant, he managed a growing security integration company and was tasked with bringing it to the next level, expanding its implementations to include wireless infrastructure, automated license plate implementations, and surveillance on-demand applications. John's a visionary who sees the future of security as an IoT, OT, and cybersecurity convergence landscape that is only growing. And with that, let's turn it over to Steve. Thanks, John. And I appreciate uh, uh, having John uh, Polly with us today. Uh, I look at John as a visionary. Uh, he certainly is someone who uh, I, I view as a futurist in, the, in our industry. He, uh, he and I have known each other uh, for uh, a while here because he's a regular contributor to uh, Security Business Magazine and also has done some other projects for us as well. So, uh, John, you know, I'd like to begin our conversation with uh, focusing on some industry trends and technologies that are being driven by policy and, and governance. Uh, I don't think in today's world we can talk about any types of technology without uh, dealing with compliance, policy, and, and governance. So, uh, but especially in the space that you play in, there are several topics that uh, I, I know check your box and, and, and kind of get your juices flowing here. And the first one I want to talk about is, is a concept that is – relatively new to the security industry but it's been in the uh in the construction sector for you know almost two decades uh now and uh I i'm talking about digital twins uh it's been a concept that's been applied to construction projects like i said for for more than 20 years but it's relative relatively new to our our industry uh but as iot uh, has expanded into the physical security space uh, the digital twin is is also migrating into physical security, so I, I'd like to know uh, if you can kind of enlighten us a little bit and talk about what uh, the digital twin means for the security industry and how it might be a game changer. Sure, and and Steve, thank you for uh, 
inviting me to join. John, thank you for uh, for hosting as well. Um, for me, you know, digital twins. That that it is it is a change in our industry. Um, it, it's no longer just the flat Revit or 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 CAD file, but it's it's that CAD file come to life, right? It is a it is a true digital twin, a, a true um, dish representation of that design. Now, the the I'll say concern. The challenge with digital twin, though, is when you say digital twin, um, I, you know, I, I think it is, you know, in Alaska, they have uh, multiple words for the for the word snow, right? Um, digital twin can can include um, a number of different technologies um, that affect our industry different. It could be three-dimensional uh, um, mapping. It could be uh, BIM plotting. Um, it could be... Uh, taking pictures um, with a 360 camera as a walk around for a Google view. Digital twins can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. But at the same point, we're getting to a, to a place from the construction standpoint and for, from security, especially as we bring in IoT applications, where we can, from a, a functional digital twin, so, so a, uh, uh, a separate as built plan, if you will, we can control IoT devices through uh, through networked um, uh, network links. We can go in and start implementing and dropping physical devices in a virtual world, so we can see and interact and utilize the digital twin to affect the physical world, if you will. And it's a much, you know, I will say that in, in our industry, as-builts sometimes are very difficult to come by. They're always the, one of those things where an end user wants a, a clear set of as-built drawings. Of course, things change, right? The digital twin is is constantly updated and upgraded and, and revisioned to stay accurate. And so you have a, a, you have a digital twin that stays with you all the time uh, that's constantly being updated and, and growing with with you as an end user. But from that digital twin, you're able to do more things. You know, with that, there are you know, different levels of maturation for that and as related to the project. Can you kind of expound a little bit on uh, uh, the maturation levels of digital twins as they relate to, say, asset management and also real-time situational awareness? Sure. So, you know, I, the maturation levels to me, the way I, I look at them is it's it's really what the end user is looking for, but it's uh, you're, you're going to start out small with um, uh, with asset management and being able to, to take on, here's, here's where my chillers are. Here's where my camera is. Here's where, and, and again, these are, these are construction terms that are going to be uh, utilized for, for the security industry. So um, we can, we can physically place devices on the digital twin of uh, to manage our assets, to manage our, our lifecycle management and things like that. But then we can go to the next level of that, and uh, depending on the platform, and that's they're not not all platforms are the same. But we can take that uh, that living CAD drawing, if you will, as a digital twin, and now we can start to put uh, technology drop technologies on there that allow us to 
again, interact and be able to see that, that real-time uh, situational awareness that we're looking for. And then expand that out to, uh, to be able to not only have real-time situational awareness um, from a view only, but again, that, that full, the, the goal would be to be a, to, for a full interactive scenario with all of your system, you know, in that you know, buzzword of a single pane of glass that allows you to, to interact with your entire uh, technology stack digitally at, without having to go into, uh, you know, multiple disparate systems. You know, and, and it's interesting, too, because for years we've talked about having uh, end users that want systems that offer flexibility that grow as their organizations grow. I mean, the last thing a user wants when he's uh, got a uh, either, you know, a video or a, a, an access control or any type of perimeter system is for that to be a stagnant uh, piece of technology. It needs to grow as the organization grow. It needs to expand in functionality. And this continuum that you're talking about, I guess, really kind of bridges that gap and allows for, uh, you know, not only uh, that, like you say, that one single pane of glass, but it also allows the user also working with uh, their integrators to be able to keep uh, that system a living, functioning uh, being, if you will, and meeting the needs as the organization grows. It, it absolutely is. And it's, you know, to me, the, the, the thing about a digital twin is, Unlike a lot of technologies in the security industry, this one's not just a security industry technology, right? It's something that is used by the construction industry. It's going to be used by the end user, and they're going to drop security security technologies on this drawing. They're also going to drop other construction ideas, other things that they've got to interact with. So IoT devices from uh, from network devices to food culinary tech devices to you name it, they're going to put it on there. Um, you know, and it allows you to get a better sense of where do you need to put security? One of the, the coolest things I've seen out there right now with digital twins is there's a, a drone application to be able to scan your sewer pipes under your buildings. You actually drop the drone in the sewer pipe, let it scan that, and find the find the problems. Now, obviously, that's not a secure, that's not a designed for security issue. That's designed for uh, that's that's really designed for uh, protecting the facility, making sure you don't have problems with the with uh, the plumbing and all that other stuff. At the same point, can we use that that same data to say, hey, we have a vulnerability here, and we need to put security here. We just never saw it before because it was eight feet underground. Um, and so it's it's really opening the doors for new technologies, emerging technologies, new new ideas for integrators to address and uh, you know figure out what the next level is for them to go to. And, and you know and when you talk this, you know when you talk about the uh, the use of uh, of this approach, it also fits very well into, uh, keeping tabs on the efficiencies uh, and the costs of, uh, of other subsystems, uh, but also can be used as a business organizational tool, it seems like. It is. I, and so I, I love the term business intelligence. I know it's a buzzword. I know that 
it's uh, it's somewhat overlooked or overused at this point. But you know, the way I look at it is security. We, we there's very little ROI to security, right? We we are an insurance policy for most companies. But when we can take that insurance policy and we can start to affect marketing, HR, IT, facilities, all these other companies, all these other stakeholders, if you will, in the business, now we have not only a a reason for being there to keep people on assets safe, but we also have an ROI that is measurable across the entire organization and we we become a hinge pin to everyone. We've just got to, as an industry, we've got to get out of the thought of we're just there to protect people and assets. We've got to be able to get to a point where we can say, no, we're here to affect and help every other stakeholder in in our organization to be better. Most definitely. Well, let's switch gears here. And uh, since we're kind of talking business, let's 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 jump into it full bore. Uh, you know, one trend that is driving headlines in, in our industry, in the security industry, is the p- proliferation of venture capitalist money uh, changing hands and affecting uh, the mergers and acquisitions and buyouts of uh, companies uh, in our space. I mean, just this week, we saw ADT shed its commercial security fire and life safety unit to a, a private equity firm for $1.6 billion or the amount of money uh, our lucky Mega mega lotto person won in uh, in Florida this week. So as the company plans to focus on residential and small business and multifamily consumer markets, it, it changed it changed its in, in its entire track here and and uh, went ahead and and worked with a VC to make that happy. So or make that happen. So it's especially hot in the AI sector, uh, and where you've got. Uh, Companies like uh, 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 Osto, which uh, secured an investment of close to two hundred, uh, close to a quarter of a billion dollars in 2020 from SoftBank, Vision Funds, 2I, and and uh, Eldridge, and uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We're seeing VC money get, getting into this space and just really being driven uh, by that hot new thing, which is uh, artificial intelligence. Again, which reminds you know, reminds me and some of the folks here that have been in the industry long enough, uh, the, I, the parallel that I think of is after 9-11, uh, you, you had, you know, it seemed like 150,000 facial recognition companies jump on the market. And man, you couldn't get enough VC money to get in there and, and, and back those suckers fast enough. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, there was no staying power, and it was just a big, big uh, scheme to uh, to raise money and then wind up losing money. But as as you stated in a, in a recent column you did for Security Business uh, Magazine, uh, ultimately the security industry is seeing a tech trend, a migration away from single output technology, big data, the transformation and business intelligence have brought forth an adoption of technology that is disrupting the traditional security industry and for some creating big dollar investments. So talk to me about the future of AI uh, in the security space as VC money continues to drive that engine. And and how is this going to impact users uh, as they now view legacy, their own legacy systems 
and how this is going to change the parameters of physical and cyber convergence for both the better and for the worse. Uh, sure. Um, so, you know, the, to me, and I've, I've gotten this from other companies that, that I've spoken with, the, the, the flood of VC money for the security industry started, lack of a better word, with Ricotta um, a, or a, a better company. They, good, bad, however you want to think about them, they changed how our industry did business. Um, and they, they got the attention of the VCs. And all of a sudden, the VCs said, hey, wait a minute, I can make money here and I can do it. I, I can make a lot of money here. And you're seeing some uh, a lot of companies now, um, especially startups, especially, again, Uso, um, uh, throw out another one is Hivewatch. They got $20 million from, from the uh, ex-CEO of Twitter. Um, those are all... There, folks are looking at the VC money and going, "How do I how do I capitalize on this?" Now, um, I think one of the, the pitfalls of that 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 you're also seeing is the um, really the fact that um, the investments that are coming in from VC are also are also saying you have to do X, Y, and Z, and that's taking companies who are security focused and trying to make them do too many things, too many ways. And so are they really being effective? Are they really being um, secure and all of that? Well, that's a different question, but I, I think you're seeing as people, as companies um, implement AI specifically, but they, as they um, look for the word here, um, they really, uh, start thinking outside the box they're getting vcs to to pay attention to them ai is is an e on one hand ai is very easy to look at because ai is anybody can have ai there there's ai is a term for artificial intelligence there's a whole continuum of this how good is that ai well that's a whole different ballgame and so a lot of companies are putting out there saying, oh, I've got this AI-enabled whatever. Well, it could be really good or not so good. And you're getting, you're getting VC money to help back all of it. It doesn't matter because AI is a hot topic. And if, you're in, if you've got AI in your system, you're probably going to be able to get some money to implement that um, it, now and in the near future. Um, However, I will say that uh, that's my take is that the near future may may slow down a little bit on that VC money uh, thoughts. Yeah, just it just reminds me of, uh, you know, I guess about, you know, 25, 30 years ago when uh, we had just it seemed like 100 IPOs for all sorts of IT tech every week. And, uh, and we saw the bottom fall out. Uh, we saw the same hype uh, with video analytics when it first state got on the marketplace where people uh, overhyped and underdelivered. So, uh, again, I think that's the pitfall with artificial intelligence. It's kind of a broad stroke term that can apply to almost any, anything. And when, when you're that broad, there's a lot of uh, opportunity to mislead. So we'll see where that takes us. But, you know, another big development uh, 
uh, is the potential global impact uh, with the proposed uh, European Union's uh, AI Act, uh, which is really the first comprehensive law on AI by a major regulatory body anywhere in the world. Uh, I'm just sort of ex- taking a look at what the, the EU's uh, act will, will encompass. The law is going to assign applications of AI to three different risk categories. The first, applications and systems that create an unacceptable risk, such as government-run scoring, social scoring of the type that's used in China, are going to be banned. So, you know, we're talking about the, anything from facial recognition or any type of artificial biometric that's uh, going to sector people in by uh, race or, or creed. And, uh, again, we, we see uh, the implications in China. So the EU, EU is trying to, to circumvent that quickly. Uh, the second risk category that they're looking at is high-risk applications such as CV scanning tools that ranks job applicants, uh, which are subject to sp- specific legal requirements. And finally, applications not explicitly, explicitly banned or listed as high-risk are largely left unregulated, so that leaves the door open for a lot of other interpretation. Um, so what do you think the implications are for how U.S. regulators eventually are going to have to approach AI security applications. And uh, with the EU's uh, AI Act, what are the impacts going to be worldwide short term and how do you see this playing out long term? You know, I, and I'll try not to step on my soapbox here because I, I, I really, I've been tracking on this quite a bit. Um, and these risks, these high risks, they're already seeing, um, obviously, some lobbying efforts to, to change some of them. Um, Microsoft, OpenAI, they all went and got um, ChatGPT and some of these other ones deregulated for the high risk. So it's it's not as stringent against them as, as it is, quite honestly, the security industry. This this AI Act, and, and I would say without... A doubt at this point. Now it's not official. It has not been voted on, but it's coming, right? It will be, um, in my mind, it is going to be farther reaching than GDPR ever was. And we've all seen what GDPR has done from the simple things like you can't go to a website without clicking on yes, I accept these cookies to how is your data being handled? And if you're a global company, how do you, where can you hold that data? Um, and so it, it does affect uh, tremendously, even across the pond today. The EU AI Act, I think, is going to, um, it's going to change our landscape. It, it, there's no way that it doesn't, even if it doesn't go in at full, at, at its full, whatever it is today, you know, it, it, it's full plan today, because there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of questions about it. Um, France and the EU can't agree on things. There's there's still some some room there to uh, to to pick away at that armor, uh, if you will. Um, my personal thought on on this is that uh, if it doesn't go um, unchecked, and that from the manufacturers, from the from the security industry itself, um, because it's a lot of 
risk about surveillance. It's a lot of risk around biometrics. A lot, it, it, it brings in higher risk to pretty much everything that we touch that involves AI. Um, in the next 18 months, this act will affect what we do for the next five to seven years. Um, I know that sounds fear mongering and all that. It's not meant to be, but it has a very real sense of, uh, of how, how far reaching this, this is going to be. Today in the U.S., we have California laws. We have BIPA in Illinois for biometric data. Um, we have QB in Texas for, for biometric data. That's dealing with just biometrics, not, not even surveillance and other AI, uh, ethical or unethical AI practices. Um, uh, talking about China, some of the things with, you know, geoslavery that, that's being used there. There are, the, the EU AI Act, while I think it has a chance to do some good, I think that for our industry, it, it has a chance. If going unchecked, it will, it will cut at the knees. Um, you will see AI, AI be severely limited as to what our industry can try to do. Not even that they, they could do or not do. Um, I think with that, I think it will also force, um, down the line our industry to come up with a, a standard, if you will, um, of how does it get, how do we get checked? And, and maybe it's in the U.S. It's through NIST. Maybe, it, maybe we have to comply with a U, an EU law. I, those are things that are, that are coming, that are coming and yet to be determined. What I would look at is, you know, we've got now training data. Every, every company has their own training data. There is no standard as to compliance to that data. So if I do a biometric, let's say, and on one company, it's, it's 92% accurate. And the other company says, well, I'm 75% accurate. It's all based on their own training data. It's all self-certified. So when we get into something like that, there, once this AI act comes about, I think you're going to see more requirements as to you're going to have to train your data using your special sauce and whatever this governing body is going to tell you it has to include um, to make sure that it does what it's trying to do. Um, I, I think I think you're going to see um, our industry get affected, maybe in good and bad ways, over over what that looks like just because of that. Now, to that other side of that, though, I do not believe that AI is going to weigh it. In fact, I think that AI is probably going to um, to expand and expand rapidly, quickly, and, and you know, exponentially. Um, I think the use of AI, uh, again, from analytics to, um, to interoperability, you're going to see more systems work together, and they're going to do it through... Um, uh, through automated functions. Um, and I think what AI we see today is uh, it, a lot of it is rules-based. It's, it's not true AI, but I think as you start moving forward, you're going to see that, that AI really take, uh, take legs, if you will. I don't expect to, to see iRobot um, next week, but it, I think you're going to see our industry really start to expand the, the AI, AI capabilities, especially as, as uh, companies like NVIDIA come out with more chips and, and chipsets and things like that. Um, Intel as well, you're, it's just paving the way.
so John, it's it's uh, sort of like you know, uh, winter follows fall when you've got uh, uh, regulations and uh, you have any type of uh, government uh, uh, compliance. You're you're looking at how that's going to affect new technologies and how that uh, is going to be applied to uh, new forms of applications. And, you know, and especially when somebody's a futurist like you are, uh, it's, it, it almost goes, technology and governance almost goes hand in hand. And as we talk about the future of AI and how it's going to be applied, uh, obviously, um, smart cities is going to be uh, a, either a full-born uh, recipient of AI technology and all the implications it brings. Uh, <clears throat> but smart cities has been a focus of yours for quite a while. And, and as you've put it in the past, mo smart cities check all the boxes from being technologically savvy to empowering city stakeholders to do better, to addressing climate issues, etc. cetera. Uh, and smart cities are not a new trend, however. I mean, it's a genre that seems to, but it's a genre that seems to be quickly maturing uh, as the understanding of its potential implications and efficiencies are more widely shared and implemented. So uh, I'm going to let you get on your soapbox again because I know smart cities is a passion for you. So let's talk a, a little bit about the goals of a smart city and how that relates to security strategies and actual technologies when we are referring to citywide surveillance, unmanned access control, uh, orchestration of systems, and a whole holistic interconnected community of stakeholders. Uh, I, again, smart cities is another buzzword, but for you, it means a lot more. Uh, kind of share that. Sure. Um, so, the, you know, cities come, smart cities come uh, a little close to home because I used to be a police officer and I saw what things could be done and I, and, and saw the, the, the need for public private partnerships from, from a citywide standpoint. Um, you know, and, and I want to give a definition. Everybody has a definition of smart city and I'll throw mine out there as well. That a smart city is an ecosystem of interconnected technologies across city stakeholders and public private, private partnerships to increase the livability of the city. Now, that's more so in the U.S. That livability of the livability of the city is found more here. Other places that that changes, and so one of the things that, uh, and I was reminded of this recently, was where where you're doing your smart city, the goals are going to change. What you're trying to do is is definitely going to be different. Um, but in those same in that same vein, a lot of those systems look very very similar, right? You talked about orchestration, and it's one of those words that I, I love because I look at it like I, I look at a smart city like an orchestra, right? You've got a conductor who has the brass and the strings and the bass and, and the percussion and all these different stakeholders, if you will, and they're all doing their own thing, and somebody needs to be there to help them figure out how to take their own thing and turn it into a masterful piece of music, um, and that's a struggle that a lot of a lot of cities have is because they do have their own red tape and internal stuff. Um, you know, 
a lot of the struggle that a lot of smart city or a lot of cities who say, I want to be smart. Um, I want to do all these things, but I don't have $150 million to go do this. Well, um, no city has $150 million because if they had $150 million, somebody would take that money and go do something else with it. Um, what you're seeing successful cities do um, is that they are taking uh, corridors, smart streets, smart corridors, smart areas of the city, and they are implementing and they're implementing with a with a journey, not an endpoint. Right? It's it, they're looking at how do I implement systems from parking solutions to unmanned infrastructure to secure traffic cabinets to citywide surveillance to uh, um, air quality sensors to smart lights, all these other things. They're going, and the ones that are doing it successfully, they start with a ten thousand dollar project. They start with a hundred thousand dollar project. They they pilot it and then they expand and then they add on more systems to that and they do it with it again with that orchestration. They don't do it with fourteen different pieces of software to come back in and say, okay, you've got you now have to deal with fourteen pieces of software. You're bringing it into those single panes of glass, those those technologies that can allow you to do multiple disparate systems inside of one. Not not the traditional PSIM from a security standpoint. But there are other technologies out there that are allowing these these systems to now work together. Um, and so I think that's one of the things to, to, to look at as well is that these systems that they put in all have to work as one system. Now, uh, the, the statement that I've used in the past is, how do you eat an elephant? Well, you eat it one bite at a time. Now, I don't condone the eating of elephants, but at the same point, when you have these partners, other stakeholders, public-private partnerships, that elephant gets eaten a lot quicker and everybody gets full, right? No one's stuffed because they, they're holding the bag to, uh, they're holding the bag of the budget to do it all. And so that's really where, where these, these technologies have to come into and, 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 and play to. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, also within the smart cities, and this is, uh, uh, this is one of the things that I've, I've been pushing in the industry as we move th this this migration from on-premise to cloud systems, right? Those now have to have uh, compliance issues. CGIS compliance, if you're working with the police department, CGIS compliance is absolutely uh, a critical thing, um, especially if any of those departments are sending information back to the federal government. Um, through joint task force, things like that. Those That compliance, specifically on citywide surveillance, if you don't have that on your cloud system, well, you're, you're already in, you're, uh, you're behind the times. You've got to start making some decisions. Um, that's why most police departments today still go with on-premise solutions because it's an easy button. They don't have to deal with where does my data sit and, and how am I securing it? And again, we go back into cybersecurity and AI and all these other things in that in that one statement. So it's not a very light statement to say that. Um, but those there are compliance issues that we deal with from a smart city standpoint. At the same point, I think we can get through most of them. You know, when, you, when you're looking at a smart cities uh, approach, I mean, uh, I think most of us will agree that uh, you can break smart cities down maybe into the five areas of 
uh, deliverable services. Uh, there's going to be technological development. There's going to be online government services where you can make government services, uh, everything from voting to registering or licensing easier, uh, enhance transportation systems, uh, make those work better. Obviously, more secured public spaces. And uh, then sustainability, sustainable development, so you can grow jobs and, and, and uh, create economic hot spots in, in your city. And, you know, I remember uh, you know, I did, uh, I did a, a conference that we developed here uh, called Secured Cities. We did, did that for about seven years, and we did it in uh, various cities around the country, Houston, Philadelphia, uh, Atlanta, Baltimore, and the approach to all these cities in Chicago, all, uh, all these cities uh, knew that if uh, if, a, if you're going to have a secured city concept, that it had to be a smart city concept as well. But the only way that can happen was with, uh, like you said, you got to have public-private partnerships that are, that are well-defined and that are strong. Uh, bringing the public sector in here, especially uh, like in in, uh, in Atlanta. They, they have set up just a uh, an incredible system where you've got all the downtown business districts uh, uh, that have latched on to the, uh, the police uh, video security hubs. Uh, so everybody shares that data, and there's like there's just a constant stream of intelligent data coming in across the board, which helps uh, dissipate crime and and uh, and just brings a more uh, robust economic engine to the city uh, and all the other cities that we worked in. But even you know even Baltimore, which has had its problems, is uh, is developing that. But uh, I'm like you; I think the smart cities concept is something that's got to work. Uh, I, I'm a big proponent of it. Uh, and, you know, I appreciate you, you know, bringing your views in on that. Uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to wrap this up now. John, uh, I really appreciate you spending time with us here today. Uh, like you said, we before we got on the air, we could probably go four hours with some of the topics that you and I had outlined. But uh, I would just, uh, again, thank you for your, uh, your expertise and your passion and what you brought to the table here. So, uh, again, our guest today has been John Pauly. Uh, again, I, I like to refer to him as a futurist. We will uh, be scheduling our podcast uh, in the future now, hopefully every uh, second and fourth Wednesday of the month. John Doberstein, I'll let you take it back home, and uh, we'll see you next time uh, on Security DNA. Well, Steve, I want to thank you and John for providing this educational and enlightening discussion about trends and technologies in the security industry that are being driven by policy and governance. Just a reminder to our audience, this podcast is for you, so you can stay informed about trends in the security industry anywhere, anytime. To access our podcast lineup, go to podbean.com and search for Security DNA. Of course, we'd love to get some feedback from listeners about topics they might be interested in. If you have a suggestion, send an email to splasky, S-L-A-S-K-Y, at securityinfowatch.com. This episode of Security DNA was recorded and produced by John Doberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch. Steve Lasky, John Polly, and everyone here at Security InfoWatch, thanks for listening and stay safe out there wherever you may be.